I want to dismiss our junior high kids if uh, it's time for you to head off with Sam uh, for your time. Thanks for worshiping with us this morning. Well, good morning, Upper Room. How's the church today? In good hands, always, with God. Uh, we are second week into a series on marriage, sex, singleness, trying to understand what God's design is for that part of our lives so that we can uh, know him, trust what he says, and start to see how his intentions for us actually are to bring us good and to bring us joy, and ultimately uh, a life where we have no regrets. And what I said to you last week was no regrets may sound like a naive promise to those who are starting out in life, but maybe if you've spent any time being married or you've lived long enough, you might say, well, more of my years are behind me or I already have regrets. What do I do about that? And what I said to you was this, is that the most important day in your life with God is always today. You can't do anything about the past, and the future is uncertain. And so always in our life with God, the most important day is today. And as we listen to what God has to say to us from his word, we have the opportunity, no matter what we might regret in our past, to be able to say, today I'm going to head in a, do, in, in a different direction. Today, I'm going to choose to listen to what God has for my life and actually try to follow him. And what will happen in your life is that as today begins to shape all of your future, not only does God begin to take us in different directions as we say, I want to trust you, I have found in my own life and seeing in the lives of other people that God, as I trust him, actually is, is able to reach back into my past and heal the things that I can't change. And actually so that I can begin to move forward in a life with no regrets. Not because I think, oh, I have no regrets, I wouldn't change a thing. It's the most foolish statement anyone can ever make in life but because God has healed my past and I'm living life his way now. And so that's the promise ahead of us. Now, today we're going to get into uh, the next, uh, today we're going to talk about marriage. Next week, we're going to talk about singleness. We're going to spend two weeks on sex. And then at the end, we're going to talk about, okay, now what? No matter where we are in life, no matter what regrets we may have or life stage or what we think might be ahead of us, where do we head from here? As we talk about marriage, this is really a topic for every one of us because every marriage in society affects the society as a whole. It was Abraham Lincoln who said, the strength of a nation lies in the homes of its people. And I don't think that is, a, that is false. I think it's a very true notion that no matter what's happening at the level of corporation, at government, in the public sphere, ultimately, ultimately what's happening in the private lives of individual people in homes shapes what goes on in a culture, in a society. So that every one of us cares and should care about marriage. And even if you're not married, if you think, well, maybe someday I will be, Tim Keller points this out, that we have to have an accurate view of what marriage is so that we don't over-desire it, so that we don't make it out to be more than it really is, and that we don't under-desire, which was what many people in this society have in thinking it's so unideal, it's so unappealing, yeah, it's, it's, it's not worth it. And so as we hold up what, what God says marriage is meant to be, it helps all of us, if we're married, certainly to say, okay, this is how I need to bring my life in line with what God says marriage is supposed to be in his gift to me. But even if I'm not married, to think, well, this is going to cure me, hopefully, from over-desiring or under-desiring marriage. And even if we think, maybe if you're in a situation where you're after a marriage, or you think, well, I'm not, I don't know if I'm going to get married again. Doubtless, you have people in your life who are married as you're walking alongside others. And certainly, even the healing work in our lives that God wants to do comes from us having a greater understanding of what his plan for marriage actually is and how it works itself out in our lives. 
Now, as we start this, uh, I want to ask you um, a question. How, how many of you have, have engaged in some kind of contract in your life? If you have a cell phone, most of you have had a contract. If you have a mortgage, you have a contract. In your employment relationship, you have a contract. Maybe some of you is very clear what that is. Maybe in unionized environments, those contracts are very clear. But even if it's not, you have, oh, what do you? Oh, yeah, Q&A. Thank you. Uh, we're going to do Q&A every, every time during this series. So if you have a question, uh, Tony's number is on the back of your bulletin. Uh, you can text him during the service. If you're texting, I'll assume that's what you're doing. Um, and we'll take some of those questions. Any we don't get to today, we'll still answer on blogs and all that kind of stuff or, or, or the next coming weeks. But contracts, starting to think contracts are actually everywhere with us, whether it's an employment, whether it's a mortgage, whether it's a credit card, whether it's um, a cell phone, there's some kind of uh, arrangement that we uh, inescapably get, get called into one way or the other. And contracts um, basically are agreements between two or more parties to a set of terms. And the terms are very clearly laid out. Now, the more significant the um, sort of terms and uh, agreement, the more detailed the contract, right? And so you can, you can get into a cell phone contract just over the phone. Um, but a mortgage, you got to go and you got to sign the documents, an employment agreement. And, and the more that is at stake, whether a default on a loan or, um, you know, misappropriation by an employer or uh, by an employee, the details of what's going to go down and what happens if this scenario, then what, all of that is, is laid on. A good contract doesn't leave anything up to uh, guess, chance work. It lays out if this scenario, that scenario, and, and any contract that's too vague about certain future circumstances is not a good contract. And ultimately, contracts work in the realm of these two words. If you. That is the language of a contract. These are the terms of a contract. If this party does this and that party does this, then the contract works. If in the event such and such a thing happens and you don't do this or you fail to do this, then such and such a set of circumstances will happen. Every contract is based on if you. What are your responsibilities as the person, one of the parties coming into the contract? And the terms out there relate to it, and what happens if that other person doesn't do what they're supposed to do? And it's, none of it's left up to guesswork, no good contract would do that. Now that just tends to mark most of our lives, it's just the nature of living in the society that we live in. But the problem is, is that if you has been imported into the language of marriage, the mentality of contracts has infected this thing that we know as marriage, which is why I think that marriages are breaking down at alarming rates. It would seem by every study I have read, inside the church, outside the church, more and more marriages are breaking up, fewer and fewer people are getting married, and more and more children are born to either single mothers or, or a, a man and a wife who are not, a man and a, and a woman who are not married. That is higher than it's ever been. And there's varied and complex reasons for that, but I would suggest to you that one of the main reasons is that if you has come into marriage language, that this is how we understand that. And, and in some cases, there's actually a formal contract, like a prenuptial laid out if this happens and not. But even for those that don't have a contract governing their marriage, ultimately, even though if you think about it, when we 
got married, the expectation that we had when we got married was that this person was going to do everything they could to meet our needs, that this person was going to make our lives fulfilling. And ultimately, we were marrying them, assuming they were a certain way, assuming they were going to continue the kind of great behavior we saw when we were dating, assuming that they were going to fulfill all of our longings for a mate, a partner, assuming that if you do this, then I will be happy. My happiness is staked on how you act. Now, the scriptures actually tell us that these are not the words of marriage at all. Marriage has two other words. So if I can use this emphatic red marker, some of you I know flinch with that from days in school past, but you know what the two words of marriage are. Every one of you is married, said them. I do. That's not the language of contracts. It's the language of a covenant. Here's how Jesus explained it to his disciples and some of the Pharisees, the religious people who were asking uh, him about this. Now, let me give you the context before we read it. They were asking him about divorce. When can you get out of a marriage was basically what they wanted to know. And in that culture, it was a patriarchal culture. It was a male-dominated society. Basically, men could get out of marriages for all kinds of reasons. And it was something they could move on to. It was shameful for a woman. A woman could never divorce a man, but a man could divorce a woman. And that was the culture they were in. And so the religious leaders who kind of governed the social norms and how things went in the day basically came to Jesus and say, hey, how does this work? What are the loopholes? What are we able to do? And here's what Jesus said. And, and in his response to this, we get his understanding of what marriage is. Matthew 19, verses 3 to 6. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, and here he quotes Genesis, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Now, Jesus doesn't use the words, I do, but as you read this passage, we understand this is the furthest thing from if you. In fact, he said, there are no two parties anymore in this thing, both agreeing to a set of terms. Two become one. They leave an identity as a son of so-and-so or a daughter of so-and-so, which is what your identity was in the ancient world before you got married. And now they form a, a new identity. Two have become one. This is essentially a picture of I do. And he uses the words one flesh. And that we're going to talk a little bit in, in a few weeks about sex and what this idea of sex is as related to this description of one flesh. But the one flesh union, the idea of two becoming one, is the dominant picture that governs what marriage is. And it is a picture of I do. When couples exchange the vows in a wedding... And some of you have recently got married, some of you are about to get married, but even if, if you've ever been married, you know this point. Each person pledges themselves, not to a set of terms, but to the other. See, a contract governs a relationship between parties in agreement to a set of terms. But a covenant is a promise to a person. 
A covenant is a promise not to a set of terms, not if this, but I do. And the minister or the priest, whoever asks them, do you take this person to be your wife, to be your husband in sickness and in health, for better, for worse, come what may, no matter what if, do you. And they say, I do. And then they hope that the other person says, I do too. We know something has gone really wrong in a marriage ceremony. And we would think it's strange if there was this contract language, as long as you do this, this, I will. And yet, human nature, and this is true about every one of us who got married, we used I do language, but we got married on an if you premise. If you make me happy, I will be happy. If you are able to stay as beautiful as you are today, I will find you attractive. If you are able to be as sweet and kind and giving and gracious and polite as you have been during our dating, I will. We can't help it. If you language just permeates our souls as human beings, and it's all around us as culture. So though we said, I do, ultimately we were thinking, if you, which is what has created all kinds of problems in every single one of our marriages. And every one of our fights comes from, if you. See, the day that you got married, Jesus says, you died to an old way of life. You died to living for you. And you joined and you became one with another person. You started a new day for every day of the rest of your life, which is no matter what you do, I do. No matter what you do, I will. And yet all of the conflict we have in relationships is because the other person has not done or is not willing to do, or is doing things at that moment that make it hard for us to do. But it doesn't change the language. It doesn't change the idea that this is a covenant. And a covenant is not based on terms, and a covenant is not based on the behavior of the other parties. The covenant is based on my promise to you. And herein lies the challenge of marriage. If you think about the conflict that we have in marriage, why do you always? How come you never? If you hadn't of, I wouldn't have. Yeah, but that's because you, right? From the smallest little squabbles to the biggest rifts, they're all about if you. If you would only. If you hadn't of, no, I'm reacting because you. And so we return anger with anger and we return sin with sin because it's an if you world that we're living in. Jesus says, marriage is not that way. You have left I and you have become one. Now, what does this actually look like? Well, we can just go to the passage that many, many, many people read at their weddings. 1 Corinthians 13. 
The Apostle Paul is writing here about what love is. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 7. Let's say it together slowly. It's on the screen there. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. These are beautiful words to read at a wedding. You know, the thing is with this list, and maybe this is a very familiar passage to you, but even if you've never heard this passage, maybe you would assume that, yeah, this is a pretty good description of what love is. But love is not a noun in this context when we read this. It is a verb. These are action words. The Apostle Paul says, this is what love looks like. This is how it's lived out. This is the acting out of love. In that sense, love is not a being or a feeling. It is a state of doing. Love is active in marriage. And the covenant of marriage says, no matter what you do, this is what I will do. Even as I read that list, any of us that are married, or maybe if you were married, can I be so bold as to assume that many of us, and I'm including myself in this, as we go through this list, are thinking about what our spouse doesn't do? That's just default thinking. And yet in an I-do relationship, this is my list no matter what you do. This is what I'm supposed to be doing in the marriage. And what I've realized is that these things do not come naturally. What comes naturally is lust. I'm hoping you will fulfill my sexual desires. I find you attractive. That comes naturally. We're made for each other, feelings. That comes naturally. Infatuation, that comes naturally. We're going to spend the rest of our lives together, that comes naturally. This list does not come naturally. It needs to be cultivated, grown. And Andy Stanley, in his book, The New Rules, points out that couples who really need to live out this list, a promise, in a sense, is not enough. We actually have to work hard at all the little decisions every day to let love rule in our marriage. Love is patient. Am I, am I, no matter what you do, am I patient? And as Rick Warner says, we can't say that we're a patient person unless about 90 out of 100 times that we have the opportunity to be impatient, we are patient. 
right? We can't even practice patience unless we're given an opportunity to be impatient. And so here we have the opportunity in the grounds of marriage. Am I patient? When I have the opportunity to say, hurry up, what's wrong with you? Why do you always, why, you know, why, why are you always late for this? Or why can't you change? That I have the opportunity to show patience. Love is kind. Kindness, how do I react to another person's weakness? Am I long-suffering? Kindness and patience, in a sense here, commentators say even go together. Am I kind over a long period of time? <laughs> Any one of us can be kind to a point, but honestly, how long are you going to be like this? How many times? This remember? My list. This is my list. Am I kind and patient over a long period of time? It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. Whatever you do, am I celebrating what is happening in your life? Or am I annoyed that it's not happening in my life? That's what envy, boastfulness, and pride looks like, is that I can't really celebrate for you because I'm just annoyed at what I'm, not, uh, not I'm getting, what I'm not getting. This, as I was reading through this list this week, I, I had to call my wife and say, you know what, I'm not, I'm, I'm not patient with you enough. I'm not kind enough with you. And I had the opportunity to go to a conference in California, which I know it sounds like a really tough place to go to a conference. And my wife is at home looking after our four kids. You know what? And she had a rough week. They all got sick. And she's like, I'm so glad you're there learning and having a good time. And she, like, honestly. I have three? Okay, I have three. I'm kind of the fourth one when I'm home. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Confessions you didn't even know you were going to make. <clears throat> She's like, I'm so glad you're having a good time. I'm like, that just made me feel like, I was like, wow, I can't believe someone would love me like that. Like she's happy for me, genuinely happy for me. Do I take delight as much as if it was my own success and the success of my spouse? It is not self-seeking. That is the essence of I do is I don't worry about what you do. I'm not trying to get from you. This is what I'm doing. I'm trying to give to you. It is not easily angered and it keeps no record of wrongs. Wow, these two together, powerful combination. And I'm not easily angered by you and when I get angry, I don't bring up the past. Whatever you do, whatever you have done, my love for you is not one that gets easily angered. And I don't bring up the past. Bringing up the past is never an above the belt move. It's always dirty fighting. Because you don't bring up the past to help the other person see the trajectory of their ways. You bring up a past that no one can change as a power play. And we all do it. And love says, no, I don't keep the record of wrongs. And then, as if we thought the list was hard enough, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. No matter what you are doing, 
Even if you've done something, you know what? Trust, I'm gonna assume that what you did was not actually for my bad, but I'm gonna trust you and assume you had good motives. Even if in the past you haven't. Always trust. Always perseveres. I'm not gonna give up fighting for this. I'm not gonna give up even if I feel like, man, I'm so tired of you doing this. It always perseveres. It always protects When we're out in public, I'm never gonna speak a bad word about you because I'm protecting your honor. I'm protecting your respect. That's my job as your spouse. That's what it means to love you. It always hopes. It never gives up hope. No matter how, where we've been or no matter how hard it gets, we're not gonna give up hope because we're, that's what love is. It protects, it perseveres, it hopes. Here's what I've realized. That, and I've given this analogy to some of the couples that I do premarital counseling with. Marriage breakdown is a lot like my golf game. I'm a terrible golfer. I don't even do it anymore because it causes me to sin <laughs> in ways that I don't need to go into. But so when I'm at the tee like this, this isn't even good form, and I hit the ball, I'm sure, like I, I can kill this thing. I know how to hit a ball. And I'll take, I'll always use the biggest club I can. And I'm sure I know where it's going. And I hit it 250 yards that way. But by the time it gets there, it's 250 yards that way. Now I can look at that 250 yards and go, oh my gosh, I had to get this far off. You know where it started? This, the fractions off at the T. And I have seen that in marriage. Very rarely. Is it the big things that break down a marriage? The big things happen. And we often think, well, if they hadn't have done this, if they hadn't done that, it started here back at the beginning. Small little things, opportunities to love that were not taken. It's the thousand little deaths to self every day, carrying out, I do that allow us to make this list a reality over time. So that way down the line, we either have a marriage of love, we have something that's so far from it. And by that time, sometimes there's almost so much hurt piled up. The opportunity to love starts here and it's all the little things. The big things, the acting out that happens in marriage is a result of a thousand little things that were not attended to over time the little deaths to myself so that I can say to you, I love you by what I do. That's how it works. See, marriage is the arena of transformation. You've heard it said, you shouldn't ever go into marriage expecting the other person to change, and that's true, but you should go into marriage expecting change. You know who's gonna change? You, me. This is my change list. God brings me into marriage and I have really none of this in my life, very little. And he provides me this arena to expose me to that truth. Remember we talked about last week that marriage is not for your happiness, but for your holiness. And that you, you got married for happiness, but God was saying, ha ha ha, I'm gonna make you holy. You think you're patient? I'm gonna give you a thousand opportunities a day to show it. This is my list. The arena of transformation is marriage, but it's myself who changes. And so that no matter what, one of us is gonna change in this marriage. And it's gonna be me. 
No matter what you do, this is my list. No matter if you haven't done, I will. None of this requires the other person to do anything. I'm not saying that we don't have, we have two people who make the I do commitment, but you can do these things and we are meant to do these things regardless of what the other person is. It's not contingent on that because this is my change list. This is my transformation list. This is how God is going to make me more holy. This is how God's going to make me more loving like him is through this list. So I do no matter what you do. That's my list. Now you might say, and in fact, as Jesus' disciples said after he's finished the passage in Matthew 19, if this is the way it is between a man and woman, it's better not to get married. That's what they said, which is an astounding statement for that culture. We hear it all the time now because judging by the surveys, guys can have their cake and eat it too, so no one's interested in getting married. And that's a crude way of saying that's exactly what they say. Why would I? But in that day and age, everybody got married. You'd never not get married. So for the disciples to listen to Jesus' description on marriage and go, if that's the way it is between a man and a woman, it's better not to get married. Now, how can we do this? For those of us that we say, well, it's too late, I'm married. I said this. I wasn't quite, and it's true, I wasn't quite realizing at all what it meant. And over time, now I'm starting to realize this is what it means. That's where we turn to John chapter 13, verse 34. It's a verse that many of you may know. It is the key in this. How is this possible? John chapter 13, verse 34. Jesus says, a new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. I do, Jesus says, is not based on whether they do. The I do in your life and my life is based on the fact that he has made the I do promise to us. Right? That's what he says. Love one another as, not as they have loved you, as I have loved you. And I don't think just, this just means that Jesus' love for us is our example. This means first and foremost, remember, even if you think this person who was supposed to love you with everything they have has not, remember that I have. I have loved you, Jesus says, with an everlasting love. All this love, what love is, I have loved you that way and I still do. And so for maybe those of you who are in a marriage where you feel like I'm not loved at all, and I'm dying inside. Or maybe you have a marriage that has dissolved because it wasn't love like this. Jesus says, remember, I love you like this, and no one can take that away from you. And you'll never be able to love me more than I love you. My love is always faithful, always patient, always kind. We look up at the cross as we did at Easter a couple weekends ago, and we see his love for us. No matter what anyone else has not loved you like, I love you. Remember, I have loved you. That's the first, the basis of dealing with love in our own marriage or perhaps dealing with the breakdown of a marriage is knowing Jesus says, not as they have loved you, as I have loved you. And then he says, love one another as I have loved you. In other words, with my love. You can't do this. I can't do 
patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, loving all of these people, loving this person who seems to maybe not love us in return, celebrating with them, always trusting, always persevering, never being angered, never bringing up the past. I can't do, Jesus says, I love you. It's my love that you need in you. And that's why ultimately I believe we cannot do marriage without Jesus. There will always be things that you can find in your partner where they are failing to love you. You can always find it. Every day, you can find something that your spouse did that ultimately was an if you move, not an I do. Every day, you can find things that your spouse has done where they have not loved you. And ultimately, all the little squabbles in life come from that, and even the big rifts come from that. And if you want an if you marriage, you can have it. All you have to do is keep focusing on what they're not doing. And you'll get that marriage. And eventually, it'll break down either officially or just inside. If that's what you want, you'll always be able to find it. The only way out, the only way into something new, something else, a different way, the way love lives in that marriage is if you say, no matter what you do, I do. That's my list. And I'll let God look after what you do. I'm going to love you not as you have loved me, but as Christ has loved me. Now imagine if both people in a marriage lived like that. It would be the most wonderful thing on earth, which is why if we desire marriage, it's a good thing to desire. And yet the calling is higher than any of us could do. Now, before we end, I uh, wanted to just quickly address before we go to Q&A. There are some of you maybe that will say, well, this is, the past has happened, I can't, I, I, I'm after a marriage. And we're gonna talk about that next week is if you're single again, what does that mean? But my prayer for you and as I've prayed for you this week is to know that no matter what happened, even if you felt like you were the primary contributor to the breakdown of your marriage, or perhaps you felt like I tried to love like that, but the other person didn't and I couldn't keep them. I couldn't make them stay. That you would know ultimately that still you are loved. It is no accident that Jesus calls himself the bridegroom and we are called the bride. Ultimately, even the best marriage is a pale window through which to see the enduring faithful love of God, which will one day be ours fully in Christ when he returns. And so in this day, and I realize that this, this series may be churning up a lot of sorrow for some of you. And I'm not gonna sit here and say, oh, don't worry, it's okay, Jesus loves you, just feel good about that. There is real sorrow some of us have had sorrow and hurt within our marriage, some of it after the fact, or perhaps because we're, we can't be married, we have that sorrow. Nobody can tell you, oh, you shouldn't feel bad about that. There is a deep sorrow that comes from loss. And yet we are people who don't sorrow with, without hope. So in the midst of the pain, even if this series is churning up some of this, my prayer is that God would be ministering to you and healing you of that and carrying you through that, but also to know one day I will get the love that I never deserved, but it's more than I could have ever dreamed of. 
And so we sorrow not as those who are hopeless, but who are waiting, like a bride, waiting for her groom to come get her. That is the truth for all of us. I just want to open it up. Uh, if you have any questions, you can text Tony to do that. You get, do you have any, Tony? Um, our first question is. There we go. Our first question is just um, how all, all of this connects to like the marriage rules that it talks about in Ephesians 5, for example, where it talks about how um, uh, wives are to submit to their husbands. Husbands are meant to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Can you speak into that a bit? Yeah. So that's that's kind of a complicated passage, which we don't have all of the time to get into today. But let me just say this. Uh, in my own experience. If, if I ever have to say to Jen, you're not submitting to me, there's a problem. Really, this is a call in our homes as Christian husbands to lead our wives. And that just means to lead the way in love. So maybe this is sexist, but let me say, just say this. If there's any one party in the marriage that has to do this first, it's husbands. Now, as a wife, you can choose to take offense to that or you could just say, that's fantastic. <laughs> that's my list first because that's what Jesus says. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. The wife has the easier role, which is to submit to a husband who is loving his wife like Christ. Now I know there are many times, and, and, and what I don't mean is, and so what I'm saying is, a, wife, a man should never have to say to his wife, you need to submit to me. That's not what it means. I lead the way, and if I'm really loving my wife like that, she's gonna respond to my leadership. Because if I'm leading the way in love, if I'm modeling patience, kindness, if I'm celebrating her, if I'm caring about her interests more than my own, if I'm always protecting her, if I never run her down in front of other people, if I, if I make sure I had a huge issue with one of my sons today, because we have two rules in our house. I know there's 10 commandments, we just have two. One is don't lie and don't disrespect your mother. They know it's a big deal if they ever yell at their mother. I'm teaching them that, respect for women, for their mom. If I lead like that, I think things are gonna be okay in my home. And if they aren't, that's not my responsibility then. Then I can say before Christ, and Christ, you know what Christ did when people rejected his leadership? What did he do when he comes into Jerusalem and he knows they're gonna crucify him? It said he looked out over the city and he wept. He said, if only you had known what would bring you peace. That is my, even if I think that I'm doing everything I can, but my wife refuses to admit, my, goal, my, my option then is not to say, you should obey me. First of all, I'm a sinner. You need to obey Christ. I should weep. I should get down on my knees and pray for my wife. So if there's a problem in your marriage and you think your wife's not doing something, you need to be praying for her more. If you are not praying for your wife, you don't have a word to say to her about what she should be doing, obeying you. That's how we lead, loving on our knees before God. If all of that is done, God will take care of the rest. 
That's my view of it. Okay, next question. Um, can you speak a bit into like how all this uh, relates to um, abuse and adultery? Okay. Um, well, that's a big question. Yes, it is. 30 seconds or less. Yeah, well, like I said last week, I think in an I, if marriage is supposed to be I do, um, then obviously that would exclude abuse. If you're ever in an abusive relationship, you need to get out. And what I, I don't mean you need to divorce the person. What I mean is you need to step back. Separation in order for healing to take place is a biblical concept. If someone is abusing you, and if you're not sure whether someone is abusing you, you need to ask someone you trust. And don't ask someone else who may be in a similar relationship like that. Ask someone who you know will tell you the truth. You need to step away. In many cases, and I have seen cases where relationships have healed even where that has taken place in the past. But it begins first with, you can't talk about reconciliation when someone is abusing the other person. So there, there needs to be a step back. So let me just be clear about that. You need to step back and, and, and for the purpose of, of getting healing. And it may be that that's not possible and that person is not going to change their ways and they're going to continue to view you and abuse you like that. And that may mean, okay, well, then this marriage can't stay. But that's not saying, well, no matter what you do, I, you can still love them. And here's what I'd say. If you have to, if that's you or if you're counseling someone who's in that, get them to step back and get them to pray through that list for the other person. You can still pray for them. You can still love them without staying in the relationship and being abused. Okay, that needs to be stepped back and pray through that. That's, that would be one thing. If, the, if you have other questions about this, please, by all means, come talk to me about it after. And adultery. It's interesting because Jesus in that passage says, you know, accept that someone divorces for the case of marital unfaithfulness, which has led us to say, okay, well, that's the only reason you can divorce. Now, that's one of two things to, to think about it. Part of that was that culture had all kinds of reasons, and a man could divorce a woman for all kinds of things. And so Jesus was saying, no, 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 you have all kinds of reasons why you think you can walk away from a marriage. I'm going to just give you one. That's it. I'm going to make this a very high bar. But that is not permission to walk away from a marriage, even if there has been infidelity. It's not something we can throw up and say, well, then I'm out. I have seen relationships heal even through that. And like I said, usually when something like that happens, a big kind of acting out, that itself was not the issue. There were things tracing well back. And both parties need to have a conversation about what led to that. We often think that women have affairs for emotional reasons and men for physical ones, but it's not true. Women and men have affairs for emotional reasons, for stuff that's going on. And if we've had that happen in our lives and we're not actually saying, wait, what happened? What happened way back at the beginning? What happened in my heart? What happened in your heart? Why am I not able to respond in an I do way? And again, there needs to be conversation stepping back from that. But that is not the ultimate marriage ender. And so if you want to talk through, okay, how do we actually work through? How, does, how do you do I do when that has happened in a relationship? We can have more conversation about that. I'm going to talk a little bit about that in a couple of weeks as well. I know those are just cursory comments on, on pretty big issues. Just for the sake of time, I want to make sure we move on. It's possible that some of you in your marriages have been living in, in if-you relationships. And, and maybe you can see this just in the little squabbles that you have. Maybe there's been some big rifts. And like I said, 
it ultimately comes down to what kind of marriage we want to have. Because you can have an if you marriage. You just keep bringing up the past, keep finding new things that your spouse does that is breaking their vows, and you will always be able to find them. They're in every marriage, in every person, because every one of us is a sinner, and we default to if you kind of thing. And so if that's the marriage we want, you didn't do this because of that, we can get in. But I believe you and I want something more than that. I believe we want to have a marriage marked by love. I believe that whether it's one year from now, and the statistics say couples that are, that are having trouble, if they choose to stay together and work it out, five years later, 75% of them, and I've seen this cited in two different studies, 75% of them report being happier than ever. And so this isn't even this thing about it's not possible no matter how much hurt it's have, you can only have a we're surviving and not true love. It's possible. One year, two year, five year, 10 year, 20 years from now, we want marriages that are full of that kind of love, of the love of Christ. If we want that, then we need to begin to do something different. If you felt like you've been in an if you relationship, today is the most important day in your marriage to start in a different direction. And so I wanted to put a couple of things up there that maybe you need to say I do too. And you know, after having what I've talked about, this is not easy. I'm not treating this lightly. But I do know there's no other option for you, for me. If I want to have a marriage that's full of love, the only way forward is I do. And so I put up a couple of things that maybe you need to do today. Some of you need to say sorry. Maybe there's some big things you need to say sorry for, but maybe you're somebody that never says sorry. That you always have a reason for why you've done what you've done. Because that was what they did, because you. But maybe today you want to say, okay, it doesn't matter what you have done, I'm sorry. I'm taking responsibility. Maybe some of you need to say, I do forgive you. I will stop bringing up the past. And these could be little things that we bring up, little annoyances about what someone's done before. We've kept a record of a wrong somewhere, or maybe small, a whole bunch of little wrongs or a few big ones. And we bring them up, maybe today we see, I, I won't bring that up anymore. I do forgive you. Some of you need to get help. Maybe you have an addiction. Maybe you have a compulsive way of treating your spouse that you know is not loving. And your I do is, I promise to get help because this is about me and my list. Maybe you've been convicted this morning about needing to pray for your spouse more. That you've been trying to change them by talking to them, by getting mad at them. Instead of saying, I need to pray for you more. I do promise to pray. That's what I'm going to do. Maybe in your conflicts, you've had a lot of conflicts and you haven't been listening. You need to say, okay, I need to listen to you more. That's my promise to you. I will listen to you. I'm gonna be patient. I wanna know what's going on in your heart. I wanna know why you're hurt. I wanna know why you're frustrated. I wanna know way more about what happens during your day because I really haven't been listening much at all. I've only been thinking about what's happening during my day. So I promise I'm gonna listen more. And maybe some of you just need to say, I, I don't wanna keep track anymore. I'm gonna stop today. I'm going to trust you. If you're home late from work or wherever, and even though it's maybe been a thousand times, I'm going to assume it's a good reason. I'm going to trust you. 
I know these things sound like monumental things, especially when there's been a lot of hurt, but like I said, I don't see any other way forward for us to get the kind of love we want to have in our relationship. The only way forward is I do. Because there will always be something that the other person has done that we can say, but yeah, but you didn't. But I want, and I believe you want, a marriage full of the love of Christ. The worship team's gonna come up and lead us in response. Let me just pray for you as they do. Jesus, we can look at this list in 1 Corinthians 13 and be totally overwhelmed. And yet what we need to be overwhelmed with is your love. We need to be people overwhelmed with the love of Christ. And I pray that this morning we would know that you love us and that for those of us that know we need to make these commitments, we need to change, we need to start taking more ownership and forgetting what the other person is or isn't doing. By your spirit, Jesus, help us. Fill us with that kind of love because you were the one that said to us, no matter what you do, I do. Even on the cross, you said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. This is what I'm doing. And so fill us with your love, Christ. And for those this morning that are here that are despairing, fill them with hope, not naive optimism, but a true hope that your love that always protects, always hopes, always perseveres can fill us and change the past and change the direction. And so by your grace, today we choose. By your grace, we pray for all the marriages in our community, in this church, to move closer to I do because you have for us and we are eternally grateful. It's in your name because of that that we pray and sing. Amen. Bless you with an overwhelming sense of the love and the grace of God to you. It is impossible for us to love like that without his love in us. And so first and foremost, I just pray that this morning you would sense and know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ filling you, not just in your head, but in your heart that you would know that a thousand times we failed, but his mercy remains. Would you receive that?